You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome to Take Two. I'm Mike Murphy and I'm delighted to welcome you to a new series of podcasts about books. I'm with John Banville and this is what we're intending to do. It's a very loose format. For each podcast, I'll suggest a book for John to read and he'll recommend one for me. I'll also invite John to discuss a short story or a book of poems that he feels has been undeservedly sidelined or ignored in recent times. We're starting today with my choice. Since I'm the host of the thing, I'm entitled to do that. The one I chose was a book by Ben McIntyre called A Spy Among Friends. I have been, as many people have been, fascinated by the story of the Cambridge spies. And this is an eye-watering account of the relationship between Kim Philby, who was probably the most notorious spy of the 20th century, and his relationship with a guy named Nicholas Elliott, who hero-worshipped Philby. And for 20 years, the two of them were the best of friends, They were godfather to each other's children and so on. And Elliot was completely taken in by Philby. And eventually, when Philby was unmasked later on, Elliot said, I'm the one who has to challenge him. And he met him in Beirut and said, kind of thing, sorry to hear you're a Russian spy. Shall we have a cup of tea and discuss? So, John, I thought you'd be interested in this book, partly because you wrote that wonderful book, The Untouchable, about Anthony Blunt, who also was a spy, and I'm sure a very good friend of Philby and the the Cambridge gang. Um, So you you must have at least had a passing interest in reading this one. Well, interest never ceases in in the the Cambridge spies. They were such a strange group of people. Um, Gilded youths, you know, they had everything. They had upper-middle-class background, they had money, they had friends, they had lots of sex, they had lots of champagne, they had lots of parties, and they were dedicated agents of the Soviet Union. But they how? How were they dedicated? Why did they become dedicated agents of the Soviet Union? After Anthony Blunt was named as a spy in the 1980s, 1970s, by Mrs. Thatcher, somebody asked him, said, Anthony, why did you do it? And Blunt said, oh, cowboys and Indians, cowboys and Indians. Um, I don't think that people like Blunt, Guy Burgess, even McLean, I don't think that they quite understood what communism was, what Marxist-Leninism was. But they stuck to it, and they, they led this wonderful double life. I mean, they had no desire whatsoever to go to the Soviet Union. Burgess and McLean were horrified when they had to go and live there uh, and lived miserable lives in in the Soviet Union. Uh, Of course, Stalin himself didn't want to be in the Soviet Union. He said that, you know, what he liked to be running was America because that's that's where the, the the real people were and the real money. The revolution should have been there with him at the head of it. Uh, So they were they were very mixed up people. Um, But if you think about it, to have a gilded life, you know. Life in the 1930s in Britain was wonderful, if you were upper middle class, if you were one of the boys at Cambridge. And behind all that frivolity, you had this iron faith, this iron ideology. When you think about it, it's an ideal way to live. It's like being a dissolute Catholic, you know. Was Philby 
the ringleader. They were approached by the Russians while they were in Cambridge. And Philby seems to me, but then you you know more about Blunt, but but was did I did Philby, by the way, recruit Blunt to no. the Russians? He didn't. No, no. Uh, I don't think Philby recruited anybody. Philby was the strangest of them all. He was uh, a loner, he was a solitary. His wife, when they went to Moscow, when they had to go to Moscow, uh, she asked him one day, she said, you know, which do you hold more dear, me and the, 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 the child or the Communist Party? And he said, oh, the par- party, of course. Um, now, that was a sort of leading question. What was he supposed to say? You know? uh, he had a pretty grim life in the Soviet Union. Did but he? He, he, never, like... he never announced the faith. To the end, he was saying, this was what I absolutely believed in. Yeah. And that people call me a traitor, I see myself as uh, loyal, loyal to the right. cause. Right. I think they let him go eventually. They, he was taken on by Nick Elliott and uh, challenged and so on. But even though it was 20 years later on, they had discovered he was this the greatest spy of them all. Um, I, I don't think they wanted him to come back to London for a trial. Oh, certainly not. They were quite glad that they all went off. The three of them went off. Um, in a way, he is the most well-known because he's the most enigmatic. The one who did the most spying was Donald McLean because he gave the atomic secrets of America and Britain to the Russians. Stalin knew everything about the atomic program in America and in Britain through Donald McLean. He gave them thousands of them. In fact, he gave them so much that they were deeply distrustful of him. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe they were getting such riches from him. They kept saying, are you sure you're not a double agent? Are you sure it's not the British government supplying us with fake stuff? And he would say, no, I am a communist. And they'd say, but you're not really, are you? And he'd say, well, whether I'm a communist or not, I want to prevent atomic war. And the only way to prevent atomic war is to have nuclear parity. So he was the... In terms of damage, he was the one. What about Philby, though? The the whole relationship between Philby and the boys' club and the old boys' club was extraordinary, that he was brought in to the uh, espionage section, MI5, or was it MI6? I can't remember. But he was brought in as a spy, and all the time he was reporting everything to Russia. He became this guy, Nicholas Elliott. He trusted Philby implicitly. And even though there were awful things happening, I mean, you can say, okay, there was something vaguely romantic about it for these guys and what they were doing. Philby actually was responsible for the death of, they say, possibly a couple of thousand people. Well, certainly he betrayed the uh, the botched invasion of Albania. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he tipped them off by that, and a lot of agents were killed. He would say they deserved it. They were, you know, they were, they were trying to bring down the system that I believe in. Sorry, just, but I believe it. Sorry they to, died, but I have no regrets about it. Just elaborate on that, just to tell people what, what actually happened there. Oh, the kid, the, the British, I think it was a British operation. They were going to invade Albania in the 50s. And uh, Philby told the Russians that, you know, to expect it. They'll be arriving. And they told the Albanians. Um, they, and when they arrived, they were captured, they were tortured, and they were summarily shot. It wasn't only just one sally that they made at the invasion. They made a number of sallies, yeah. and uh, they were calling, uh, they called mm. them. 
I said patronizingly, the Albanian pixies, the, yes. the guys that they were yeah. who were going in, yeah. who were Albanians. Yeah. But the terrible thing about it, and Philby, he was involved in the planning, and then he was telling Russia they're arriving at seven o'clock on the night on yeah. the following day, yeah. and they were just taken. And the but also, you see, cons- but you see, this it wasn't a game. This was war. Yeah, this was out straightforward war between two sides, and. What Philby would say is, we at least had an ideology, we had a faith, we had a vision for the future. We the Russians. Yeah, we the Russians and we the spies. We are helping to bring about uh, a worldly paradise, which all these ideologies believe in, you know. He fooled Elliot, he fooled the entire British intelligence service. He became, unbelievably, he became head of the Russian section of MI6. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable that he did. But not only that, but at that time when America entered the war and they created the OSS, which later became the CIA, a guy named James Angleton was put in charge. He was the first chief of the CIA and he fell for Philby as well in terms of he thought he was wonderful, a genius. He brought him in, gave him all the confidences that he needed for, and he again passed it all on to the Russians. You see, it was a... You also should keep in mind that it was an exclusively male world. There were some women in it, especially on the other side, on the Russian side. Um, none of the, the old boys in Britain or America would have women among them, among the spies. They were all in for secretaries and girlfriends and so forth. And rest and recuperation, and so forth. But they would not be trusted. Uh, no woman would be trusted with the, re- the big stuff. So it was a male world, uh, and it was an extension of the public school system. I, my friend John Le Carrier, David Cornwell, he he always talks about this that that world that they lived in was Eton and rugby and Harrow, you know, grown up, or at least semi-grown up. And it was still that little male clique, which was, you know, they they could not conceive that one of them could betray. They just couldn't conceive. They couldn't really. Interesting they'd say, enough. They'd say he's in my club. Yeah, listen, Milcarry, you mentioned Milcarry there, and he does an afterword to this book. And in the afterword, he had a meeting with Nick Elliott. And of course, Elliott was so discredited by having believed everything that Philby told him or didn't tell him, as the case may be, that Le Carre suggested to Elliot, did you ever think when the moment came and you discovered, did you think of killing him? And Elliot's quote was, no, we never thought of killing him. He was one of us. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to believe, isn't it? Well, you see, there's that wonderful <clears throat> phrase in French, uh, les extremes se touche, you know, the extremes touch. So that at the back, you know, there's, there's left and right at the front, but at the back they touch. They're the same. If you look at America at the moment, the left and the right are pretty well indistinguishable. And there was a close affinity between the two sides. If you look at Le Carre's great trilogy about George Smiley and, and uh, Carla, uh, you can see that they're almost, they're almost in love with each other. Uh, you know, the, the head of the KGB and the head of the, the Secret Service in Britain. Um, they knew each other. They knew... Yeah. They knew their lives, they knew the pressures they had to be put under, they knew the, the terrors that they lived with, they knew the, the dangers of becoming drunkards. Uh, so they, you know, they, 
They were almost friends. And in fact, it, in, in Ben McIntyre's book, when they're in Beirut, the German spies knew the Russian spies who knew the British spies, and they all knew each other. And they would meet in, in various clubs and hope to get a little bit of information if somebody had a few scoops too many. It was a strange, shadowy world, as, as uh, Angleton said. It's a, it's, a, it's a hall of mirrors. And poor old Angleton, his life is destroyed. Yeah, what happened to Angleton? I mean, well, he Angleton... Just, he, he just became completely paranoid. He Did he? A- afterwards? Yeah. Well, when he found out that when he, he found out about Trilby and he found out, you know, how deep the betrayal had gone, he just became paranoid and assumed... He saw conspiracies everywhere. Uh, he spent his life going back through the files, looking up people's names, following people. It was all crazy. Um, there was a, there's, there's a sequence in the book, in McIntyre's book, which I thought was very illuminating. Elliot, Nick Elliot, it was when there were rumours about Philby and so on, and Elliot, was he involved? And he was summoned to the office of the head of security in MI6, and he was extremely nervous about the, the upcoming interrogation. And I wrote down, actually, the, the interrogation. The security officer says, sit down, I'd like to have a frank talk with you, Elliot says, as you wish, Colonel. Uh, Does your wife know what you do? Yes. How did that come about? She was my secretary for 10 years, and I think the penny must have dropped. Quite so. Uh, What about your mother? Uh, Oh, she thinks I'm in something called SIS, which she thinks stands for Secret Intelligence Service. Good God. How did she come to know that? Uh, A member of the War Cabinet told her at a cocktail party. What about your father? He thinks I'm a spy. <laughs> you do have to laugh, don't you? Well, you know, I mean, I, I really got interested in this way back in the 80s, in the 70s, when Blunt was unmasked and he gave a press conference in the offices of the Times newspaper. Uh, they set up a little room, a long, narrow room. He was seated on a chair at the end. All the reporters gathering with their notebooks and their pencils and so on, because this is back in the 70s. And he didn't realise that there was a camera, television camera on him from the side. And he just sat there, completely blank, just watching the news hounds getting themselves ready. And just a tiniest smile twitched the corner of his mouth, you know. And I could see him sitting there saying, these people think they're going to get the stuff out of me. I have been through years and years of interrogation by expert interrogators. These people, I will run rings around them. And I thought, I have to write about that man. Uh, You know, he just, he was amused. He was amused. How could he control himself? He only had one, he, Blunt was, he was very interesting because he was the one that was Mr. Cool. Whenever there was a, a flap on, they went to him. He was to, the one that got Blunt. birth. Yeah. yeah. Now, by he, the way, just for people who may not know, Blunt was the, the keeper of the palace the Queen's, Queen's art Picture. collection, wasn't he? Uh, she knew from the 60s. She knew. She knew? She knew he was a spy from the 60s. How, how come? They told her. <laughs> he had done a deal. He said, uh, you know, I... I, I immunity, and I'd spill the beans. And of course, he didn't tell them anything. They, look, it was more embarrassing to have yes. it come out. It only came out in the 70s because Thatcher was in and she didn't like the Queen. 
I wanted her embarrassed. So it all came out. What about, how, you, you mentioned Philby, and in fact, in that afterward by John le Carre, he was, says that when he was in Moscow many years later on, he got word to say that uh, Philby would like to meet with him. And um, he had the impression that Philby wanted to do, uh, get le Carre to write his story. And uh, le Carre chose not to meet with him. What kind of a life did Philby have? I think he married his fifth wife while in Russia. I think I'm right. Yeah. But what, what did he make of Russia? when he, You said about the others that Burgess and McLean were completely disillusioned by what they saw when they got to Russia. What, what about Philby? How was he treated when he got there? Well, I mean, life in Russia, life in Moscow in the 50s was absolutely awful. I mean, really awful. Uh, no food. Uh, you know, it's just, just a dreadful place. Uh, Philby, to the end, maintained that he was perfectly happy, but of course he couldn't have been. Now, they would have given him a car and they would have given him a driver, but they would never have taken their eyes off him. He would have been watched from yeah. day to night because they, the Russians never trusted his spies because, as I mm. said before, they got so much rich material out of them. They said, there has to be a trick here somewhere. Uh, so they, they watched them when they were there. So Philby would have had, now they gave him the Lenin Medal or whatever, you know, wonderful. Yeah, uh, but he can't have been happy. But he never he said. Drank, he was a, an incredible drinker. He was, wasn't but he? But then they all were. They all, yeah. Donald McLean, when Donald McLean, uh, when he defected, uh, the first thing Phoebe did was have an affair with his wife. Um, and McLean was the biggest drinker of them all. There was one day when he and uh, Claude Coburn, uh, they, over two days, they drank six bottles of gin. And, I mean, they were just, they were hallucinating mm. by the end. And how, yet, drunk as they were... I was just about to say, how they come would they never reveal any secrets then? Except Guy Burgess. Guy Burgess would sit down beside people in saloon bars in Washington and say, hello there, old chap, let me buy you a drink. You know I'm a spy, I'm a Russian spy. Let me tell you all about it. And they would be in gales of laughter. And, he was... you know, now maybe this was his way of, maybe he said to himself, I'm going, I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to spill the beans, so maybe I'll just make a joke out of it. <laughs> Which would be a very clever way around. Are you still fascinated by them all? By, by oh, these as you guys? can hear, I am. Absolutely yeah. fascinated. I'd love to have met some of them. Yeah. What about the book? Did you enjoy the McIntyre's book? It's a very good book. It is very good. It's he's not, a good uh, writer, isn't he? He's a good writer. It's not, uh, he's not sweaty and, you know, the way these things usually are, overcome yeah. with excitement. It's very clear. Um... <laughs> Very clear telling of this man's life, but he McIntyre doesn't pretend to crack the secret of Philby. No, I found it a most entertaining book, but I also was looking forward to hearing your views because you you do know a deal about it. But um, the the book is called A Spy Among Friends, and it was written by Ben McIntyre. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. 
Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits! And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. I'm with John Banville and uh, John has chosen to discuss a story called Josephine the Singer, The Mouse Folk by Franz Kafka. Um, It's one of a major collection that Kafka has done. I think it might have been even one of the last stories he ever wrote. Um, And John, I'd just like to ask you, why are you including this? I think it's one of the most beautiful things that Kafka wrote. Uh, I think it is his last story. Certainly it's his last substantial piece of work. Uh, It is... It seems to me the essence of Kafka. People might have expected me to choose one of the novels. The Metamorphosis, no, I, would, I would have thought The Metamorphosis. Well, The Metamorphosis maybe. is a long, short story. But people might have expected me to choose The Trial, The Castle. Trial. I'm going to be outrageous now and say that I really could live without the novels. Um, that will horrify Kafka lovers everywhere and probably destroy what few rags of reputation I have left. But I think that Kafka is at his greatest in the stories, in the diaries, in the letters especially, one of the the great letter writers of all time, Uh, in the aphorisms, which are absolutely superb. Uh, But this story, Josephina the Singer, it's as strange as anything Kafka wrote, and yet it is completely straightforward and simple and pellucid. There are no difficulties anywhere. Kafka is the great modernist who speaks directly to the reader. You never have a difficulty reading Kafka. Every sentence is, you know, he didn't believe in in complex style. You know, he's probably the opposite to me, stylistically. And he's certainly the opposite to Joyce, stylistically. Or Kafka, or or Beckett. Uh, So, I mean, it's a cliche, it's a truism, but he is unique. A very, very strange human being. Uh, A German-speaking Jew, uh, living in Prague, didn't know much of the Czech language, but was perfectly friendly towards Czech people. Um, he spent his life working as an insurance clerk, and then he contracted tuberculosis. He died at the age of 40. He, on his deathbed, he instructed his friend Max Brot to destroy all his writings. Uh, Brot, luckily for us, disobeyed that request and kept them. Uh, and 
the legacy that has been left to us, particularly, as I say, in the short stories, in the letters and in the diaries, is magnificent. And Josephina, the singer, is... You can read it, you can read symbols into it, you can read it as a parable, if you like. You could say it's about the Jewish people. You could say it's about the artist trying to uh, adjust himself or herself to society. Tell you, us you the could story. Go on. Tell us the there's story, Abbott. There's no story. Well, go on. Try. The, mouse, the mouse folk, uh, they're downtrodden, they're weak people, and Josephine sets her up as their singer. Sets herself she, up. Yeah, Kafka yeah. keeps referring to her singing as a kind of piping. Right. Uh, so we have the impression that, you know, she's no Maria Callas, uh, but she sings for the people. She sings the soul of the people. She is temperamental. Uh, she doesn't get paid directly, but she's kept in luxury. Uh, she's, you know, the people know they need her. And there's an absolutely beautiful sentence where he's, Kafka's talking about her, her song. And he says, something of our poor brief childhood is in it. Something of lost happiness that can never be found again. But also something of active daily life. Of its small gaieties, unaccountable, and yet springing up and not to be obliterated. Any artist would be thrilled for his or her work to be described thus. Because it's everything there. Something about our poor, brief childhood, something about our gaiety, something about our lost happiness. And this story contains, I think Kafka knew, we always have to be careful talking you know, about dead artists and saying what they knew, what they didn't mm. know, and making, uh, making profits out of them. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, if, you, if, if you'll forgive me interrupting you now, funny you should say that because I was wondering in the story because it didn't really go anywhere, the story. It, it, she, in the end of the story, she's gone and people just uh, go back to what they were and she, there, there's no major gap left in the community when, mm-hmm. when Josephine is yeah. gone. But, in the, but she had dominated them and told them, I would like to sing, more or less, I'll pipe, and I'd like you all to listen, and they did. But I was thinking, was, was, could you read into it? And again, you're saying that there are people probably like me reading things into it. Could he, was he foretelling Hitler the arrival of Hitler, an, an ordinary person who set himself above the others and set himself up as a leader and one who must be listened to. In the introduction to the collected stories, uh, John Updike's introduction to it, he quotes uh, one of Kafka's friends and biographers, Gustav Janusz, who said that he said to Kafka, is your work, are you foretelling the future? He said, Kafka put his hands over his face and said, yes, yes, it is. That's why it must be destroyed. I don't think... Kafka did not see himself as a prophet. He was certainly a mystic. He was a Jewish mystic in a very long tradition of Jewish mysticism. Uh, I don't think he was a novelist. I don't think he was a... And I think that he was... uh, Very risky to say this. I think he was, to a certain extent, a religious mystic. But not established religion, not Judaism or Christianity. I think that this story, Josephine the Singer, in fact, is Kafka's autobiography. I think he's Josephine the Singer. Do you? Yeah. Now, whether he did that intentionally or not, look, writers, as he said himself, 
I, I work in the dark, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and all goes on in deepest darkness. Uh, so it's up to us to put the interpretations on. I read a number of the other stories in the collection. I had never read them before and did, I knew very little about Kafka. I had read The Metamorphosis and I had read The Trial and that was kind of it. Um, and I remember by, in reading the stories, I'm thinking, what kind of a brain had this man? And I, I, I was brought, I thought to myself, it's surreal. And I was saying, his, his writing has, in my view, a reflection in the paintings of the Dalis and the Chirico, the surrealists. There's a surreal element. Where his brain went in some of these stories is extraordinary. Well, it's important to remember that he was living in Prague in the first third of the... 20th century. Uh, Prague was, and Praguers themselves get very annoyed when you say this, but it was a magic city. It was regarded as one of the three magic capitals of Europe, the other two being Lyon and Turin. Um, it is, I think, people disagree with me, Kafka's biographer, Rainer Stach, disagrees with me violently, but I think that, that there is something odd and uncanny about the city of Prague. Certainly at the time, there, were, there was a lot of surrealism going on. The Black Theatre of Prague, a lot of uh, puppetry, a lot of the marionette theatre. Kafka was, was part of that. But Kafka, like many modernists, knew that to make something original in our time, you had to make it, as he said, a little bit unheimlich, a little bit uncanny. And a friend of mine who was translated... Kafka has gone back to the novel The Castle, to the original manuscript, the early drafts of it. And it's quite straightforward. It tells you why Joseph K has come to the castle. It tells you why he's looking for a job. But Kafka went through it and took out all the naturalistic, the realistic bits, and left in the uncanny stuff. And that's how it was done. So, and the same is true. Uh, if you read early drafts of Beckett's, uh, certainly the early works, you'll see that he he takes out, he makes them mysterious, he makes them uncanny. That was part of modernism. In terms of his personal life, he had difficulties. The old father and son relationship thing was very much there. And he wrote, I think it was a 47-page coruscating letter to his father in later years. Which his mother wisely declined to deliver to oh, did, oh, I didn't know that. No, no, Is that right? Didn't, didn't ever see it. But I mean, he the father must have given him a terrible time as a child. He's, no, well, according to his letter, the, the father, father gave was, him a terrible time. This was a literary text that he wrote. The father was just an ordinary man, didn't read books. He ran a shop selling fancy goods. Uh, he was a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a bully. Um, certainly he would have... I mean, Kafka... One scene I would love to have seen. Kafka took up this thing of, of I forget, it's something to do with diet, but you chew every piece of food something 47 times, right? And can you imagine Kafka sitting there opposite his father, just <laughs> chewing? And the father saying, would you chew, just eat chew, the bloody thing? Chew, <laughs> chewing, And those big eyes staring at the father. I'm on the father's side. You know? <laughs> 
All right. Okay, so uh, you're suggesting... I mean, I, I, I do love the idea that you're suggesting that, okay, reread it, or if you have never read it, try it out and see, uh, and just see what people think. I'd love to hear people's reactions, actually, when they do read it now, having heard what you have to say. Um, the story is uh, Josephine the Singer, The Mouse Folk, and it is by Franz Kafka. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport, or visit the home of the Titanic? Adventure awaits! And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Welcome back. We come now to our third book, and this is a doorstopper of a book, and it was chosen by uh, John Banville. It is William James in the Maelstrom of American Modernism by Robert D. Richardson. John, I, I, I really am self-conscious in admitting it. I had never heard of William James. He is the brother of Henry James, but I didn't know that. Yes, many people haven't. Um, European intellectuals largely ignore American philosophy. They don't regard it as a philosophy at all. But the philosophy of pragmatism that William James uh, promoted, he didn't invent it, but he promoted it, uh, is, it is a very American way of thinking about the world. What did you call it, the philosophy? Pragmatism. Pragmatism, okay. Uh, It's... And it's what it says. It's looking at the world uh, as it is and not trying to impose a system on it, which is what European philosophy does. It just says, here's the world. Let us try to, not to interpret it, let us try to find a way of living in it as best we can. Which should be the aim of all philosophy, but it isn't. Did religion come into it? No. No. They would have come out of the Lutheran, Calvinist tradition of the East Coast of America, uh, of the upper middle class. Uh, they were, you know, sons of gentlemen. Uh, William James's father, who was also Henry James's father, was one of the richest men in America. Uh, he came from County Cavan. Uh, he built up um, huge uh, 
fortune well, in I, real estate. He did. I mean, I was tickled when I read that he bought, or was it his father who bought? Oh, it was, sorry, his grandfather. His grandfather, wasn't it his grandfather, yeah. Billy, yeah. from County Cavan? That's right. And he bought the town of Syracuse in That's New right. York State That's for $32,000. Right. Right. I mean, it's unbelievable that I mean, such look, was the case. A, I, I know you say it's a doorstopper, but this is a wonderful story. The James family was one of the most extraordinary families that ever lived. One of the greatest novelists in the English language, Henry James, one of the greatest philosophers, William James. Uh, the sister, because she was a woman, I think she had a brain pretty nearly as Alice as, as, as rich as theirs. Poor Alice yeah. uh, was downtrodden. And they the died early. She died early. And the two of them, William and Henry, loved Alice, didn't they? They loved well, they her did, and cherished but, her. But again, they were men of the 19th century and they didn't really take women seriously. Henry James loved women. All his best friends were women. But uh, I don't think William would have been quite as... Uh, quite as much mm. of a feminist as, as Henry was. They, as you say, quite a family. And there were also the two other brothers, Wilkie and Bob. But Wilkie and Bob did not shine. I mean, Henry James became, as you, you would regard him as probably the greatest novelist. But, um, and William, you would regard as one of, if not the greatest, what, philosopher and psychiatrist. He was, he was like one of the fathers mm. of psychiatry as he well, was, wasn't unfortunately. he? Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> Why do you say unfortunately? That's another day's work. Is it? <laughs> but, um, but Wilkie and Bob, the two younger brothers, William was the oldest, Henry was next, Alice was next, I think. But they were, they, they had nothing and they were almost dependents on their older siblings, weren't they? They were, they were sad. They, they were just ordinary people. They yeah. were not possessed of, of genius, whatever that mm. word means, but they weren't possessed of that magic spark that the brothers were and the sisters were. And they went off to the Civil War. And this was uh, a source of lifelong guilt uh, for William and for Henry. They didn't go to the war. The brothers went and at least one of them was destroyed by it. Um, so they had the survivor's guilt, but they made the best of it. I mean, the great thing about the Jameses is that they, they were always working. They were always working and they suffered dreadful nervous breakdowns. Mm. The, the, their father had what he called a vast station. One day sitting at the dining room table, he just saw some figure in the corner and it, and it seemed to him that, you know, some terrible thing had, had come upon him. William James suffered the same kind of attack. And one day he just, he had seen a, a, a poor wretch in a mental home somewhere just sitting, his arms around his knees, staring at him and... William James said, suddenly I, I thought, I remembered him and I thought, I am he. Uh, so they were, they, you know, they, they, were, they were unstable, but they were wonderful workers and they kept yeah. at it. And William James was so cheerful. I remember Bob Silver's in the New York Review, he told me, they asked Isaiah Berlin one day, who's the person you would really want to have had dinner with? He said, William James. William James. He'd be the most entertaining. I mean, he was entertaining. He had to be because he had a lively personality. And he took an interest in everything. He was willing to listen to everybody. I mean, in the book, he even engages with spiritualists and he goes to seances to find things out for himself. And the, one of the interesting things, John, is this. The father, their father, 
didn't believe in formal education for William and yeah. he wouldn't even allow him to go to Harvard because he thought he was going to be corrupted. Men, I don't mean corrupted in a, in a moral sense, but mentally he wasn't going to well, be... Well, he may have been right. I mean, um, you know, Harvard, uh, education at that level in America was very stultifying at the end of the mm. uh, middle and the end of the 19th century. But... Um, but they, they had such brains, they didn't need to be educated, they educated themselves. The father's way of educating them was bringing them back and forth across the Atlantic to how Switzerland, did they do to that? France, to Germany, to Italy. They well, that's how he spent all his money. And he did, didn't he? He spent I his mean, inheritance. He would take the family and they would go to Switzerland or yeah. Paris or wherever and they'd spend six months there or whatever. And the boys would go to school for, you know, a couple of weeks here, a couple of months there. They learned the languages. Uh, it was a wonderful childhood. Wonderful, wonderful childhood. And they benefited from it. And William James always kept that spirit of exploration, of adventure, and of common sense. You know, he, I, I love it that he says he's struggling with the great philosophical problem of determinism and free will. You know, are our actions determined or do we have free will? And he said, marvelously, he said, my first... Uh, act of free will would be to believe in free will. <laughs> would be to it's believe, wonderful. yes. And another one he had was that he said, you know when you're lying in bed on a cold winter morning and you just don't want to get up and you don't want to get up, and suddenly you're up. And he said, you don't actually know what propels you from bed. He said, that's free will. That's free will. Again, you know, homely yeah. uh, instances uh, you know, not building a, a grand system like yeah. Hegel or Kant, but always talking about what it is like, what it is to be alive and how it is to be alive. Henry went off to England uh, to create, to Europe really, and to, to create his own career. And at the time that Henry was beginning to make waves and beginning to become very popular, William was still searching for himself, wasn't he? He was, but William, who was the elder, uh, was... <laughs> he was always... He annoyed Henry very much. He did. Henry felt very much under his thumb. And he would <laughs> criticise his style. And he would say, you know, well, we can't read this stuff, you're, you're, you're right. Always in a, you know, best of spirits and, the, you know, best of brotherly well, it wasn't always in the best of spirits. Well, who knows? Because who knows? I know Henry wrote back to him and said, I hate yeah. when I hear that you're going yeah. to read my yeah. stories. Yeah. By the way, can I make an observation here in relation to you? I was very amused when I read that William wrote to Henry about one of his books and he said, you'll have to change your style. I'm not at all pleased with your clotted prose. And I thought, I'm going to say that to Banville because I know how much he loves Henry James and to hear that, because I think, if you don't mind my saying so, John, I think that sometimes Henry James's prose is a little clotted too. It's deeply clotted. Oh, so great. I'm delighted to it's, hear it's, that. It's especially the late in the, in the last three great novels, the style is practically impenetrable. <laughs> but that's intentional. That's part of the process. What do you mean? He, why is that intentional? Because James Joyce talked about the stream of consciousness. Nobody thinks the way that people do in Ulysses. Nobody. We think in bits and scraps and images. And so Joyce himself admitted this wasn't the case. But if you claw your way through those last three novels. It's like walking through a fog, and it's exactly the process of being conscious. This is how we live in the world. We don't know what we're doing. We stumble along. We imagine, you know, all meaning is conferred afterwards, in hindsight. We don't know what we're doing, because we live in this strange present that doesn't exist. 
What is the present? You know, it's, it's, it, you cannot grasp it. It's, it's, it's always gone. So we don't know what we're doing. And Henry James's late style, which William James detested, catches what it is to be conscious. Now, I think William James understood that about Henry. I think it was one of the things that annoyed him. That, you know, my little brother is catching the, the nature, the, the, the texture of consciousness, whereas all I'm doing is writing about it. Whereas Henry was writing it, William was writing about it. They, although they, they had a very refined intellectual life, when William went off to the Wild West, over to the West Coast of the United States, he saw things somewhat differently. He saw and, and reported on the courage and the hard work of the people who were making the West a part of America. He really admired them greatly. Well, he was, yeah, he was a great, I mean, he, he was very humane. Uh, he was, as I said, I'd love to have been at dinner with him. I think he, he would be a marvellous conversationalist. And he had a heart, uh, a very open heart. Uh, he wasn't sentimental. None of the Jameses was in any way sentimental. Alice, you know, had a wonderfully dry wit, even when she was on a deathbed, you know. Uh, so they were a tough family. But they, yes, they, William saw how hard it was to make the country. This is one thing poor old America has, is forgetting at the moment, is how hard it was to do it, uh, to make this great country. Uh, you know, Trump going on about make America great again. America is great. It has terrible faults, terrible problems to deal with, but it is a great democracy. And William James was one of the people who contributed to that, to the making of that world. In, in terms of the education, we talked about Harvard before. He eventually, later, later in his career, he became lionized. I mean, he made, himself, he made himself economically independent by selling a book that he wrote himself and publishing it, to, Talks to Teachers or yeah. something, I can't remember the name yeah. of it. And, um, and he made himself financially independent. And he did become lionized in later years. People used to throng to his lectures and so on. And he became one of the great names of Harvard, ironically, but he, even then, when he was in Harvard and he was an established figure, he regarded himself as an outsider in Harvard and actually lectured them on their elitism and so on. Oh, yes, he was. I mean, he hated the, the PhD process, the circus of the PhD. You know, you, you work up, you get your PhD, and then you're a great man, you're a pillar of society. He yeah. hated that uh, and fought against it all his life. And he fought from the inside. Uh, he, I mean, he was a, a New England gentleman. He was like Kim Philby, you know, he was one of us. Um, so he was allowed to suddenly went in, telling them what was wrong with the place. But he was, he was a great educationalist himself. His lectures, I mean, he lived in the golden age of the public lecture when, you know, mm. you could make a, Dickens or Oscar Wilde could go to America and make a fortune from traveling around giving talks. This is before television, radio and cinema. Uh, but his lectures are wonderful. Absolutely. You can still read them with, with the greatest pleasure and, and you can still learn from them. Mm. Henry, um, he and Henry, as, as we were saying, there, there was an element of competition between, between the two of them. And Henry genuinely took umbrage at the fact that William, after his first child and his second child were born, 
betook himself off for a long holiday almost immediately to Europe, leaving his family behind. And uh, Henry was offended by that. Well, so he should have been. I mean, you know, these gentlemen at the end of the 19th century, no matter how humane and no matter how feminist they were, they were the bosses. They were the, they were the people who ran the thing. And the wives looked after the home. Yeah. Um, poor Alice, the sister, suffered from that. He used to get crushes on women too, didn't he, William? He used to get crushes. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, he, I think he quite an eye for the ladies, whereas Henry had an eye for the boys. So. Yeah. But which of them died first? Uh, William. William. Yeah. And was it a tragic loss for Henry? Like, were they, were they quite old? Were... They hadn't seen each other for quite a while, but it was. Oh, it, 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 yes, it was. Yeah. Henry took it very hard. He loved. They loved each other. They absolutely did. It comes across in the yeah. book. By the way, I they thought... Would have, they would have loved each other as men, as human beings. Uh, yeah, as dinner companions, yeah. even. They would have been great, the greatest friends. They, they would. By the way, I thought that the man who wrote it, Robert D. Richardson, did an unbelievable job. He's one of the great, great uh, modern writers. He, he died recently. Um, he... This is one of a trio of, of biographies. The other is, is uh, of Emerson, and he did one of Toro as well. The Emerson one, I think, is absolutely superb. I think it's even better than the William James one. William James is slightly more entertaining, but the Emerson one is just so passionate and so beautifully written. When I got the book, at your suggestion, I was a little discouraged. I thought, oh God, the size of it. And it's about philosophy. And it's about psychology. Will I ever get through it? But I did enjoy it immensely. And I fe- I, I'm so pleased that I made the acquaintance of William James, as I say, somebody I never even knew about. Well, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the pleasures of reading. Yeah. Uh, and there's no point in doing it if you don't enjoy it. Mm. You know, if you don't like a book, put it away. Put it away. Dorothy Parker said that, hurl it at the first wall or whatever. Um, Rightio. John, okay, that's William James in The Maelstrom of American Modernism by Robert D. Richardson. And John Banville, can I thank you very much indeed. I've just enjoyed your company so much on this little literary traversing of a few books. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you, Mike. Our three books today in our podcast were A Spy Among Friends by Ben McIntyre, Josephine the Singer by Franz Kafka, and William James by Robert D. Richardson. I hope you enjoyed our podcast and I hope you'll join us next time round. Until then, on behalf of Senior Times, Mike Murphy saying goodbye. <laughs>